0: We're going to continue now uh, in Matthew twenty five with the parable of the of the talents. This is from Matthew twenty five, uh starting at, at fourteen. So the kingdom of heaven is as a man travelling into a far country. And so the impression that we get is that he has gone away. And yet, very clearly, John fourteen to sixteen and the teaching of the Comforter, we have the idea that the Lord is actually very, very present actively present as if he is physically with us he says look i'm going away but in reality i'm with you because of the work of the comforter that's how close it was how close he is so in what sense then is he so absent and i think the absence is in the fact that he's given his goods to his servants and he has left it to them to use their initiative in doing his work He's not going to intervene every time we mess up. He's not going to come running in, involved, in case we make a mess or a mistake. And that's, I think, the element of unreality in the story. That he gives this huge amount of wealth to these servants, uh, and he goes away immediately. Without apparently training them in how to use them. And in what he expects now, I think that that is really the the picture of how God and the Lord Jesus are working with us. They have uh, called us and given us uh, the wealth that is in Christ, and it is up to us how we use that. It is down to our initiative, and I think that's what phases people. That's what phased the one talent guy, that he couldn't figure that, and because of that, he was condemned. Now, they were given these these talents, and the same word is used about that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. And not just there in Romans six seventeen, but at least four other places. You can see them in the notes uh, in the New Testament. This word is used about the giving of the the one faith to us. For example, in Jude three, the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So then, we have been given the riches of Christ, and yet we are not to simply just hold them and then give them back to him. That's the mistake of the one-talent guy. He thought that that's all he had to do, that he could get away with doing nothing, hiding them in the earth and giving them back, not spending them for himself, keeping them in their pristine purity and handing them back. But of course, that was pointless. And... I fear that the whole attitude, which there is in many small-time Protestant groups, that you know, there was a founder who came up with certain ideas, and the sole duty of man is to keep in, in purity of understanding those, those teachings. And then when the Lord comes back, you, as it were, give it back to him. Well, if that's all you do, then according to what the Lord says here, he'll simply reject you. ...as a wicked servant. You think, wait a minute. But yes, that's what he's saying. That unless you're going to use God's truth for other people... ...then you've wasted. You've wasted it. Now, each person is given a different amount. And I think we we must give that its due weight. That each person is given a, a different amount. There are people who start on a different point on the spiritual spectrum... And go through to a to a different point. Um, and other people start way back on the spectrum, other people, maybe those raised in the faith, uh the overprivileged, it seems to me, of the Western world, uh they start a long way down the spectrum. That's a simple basic fact that we have each been given a different amount. But but the smallest amount given was one talent. Now one talent was six thousand dinari. And according to the Lord's own parables, you earn one denarii a day. Now, one talent, therefore, is twenty years' wages. And I looked on the internet, and I see that the average wage in the United States is is fifty thousand dollars a year. Now, that means that that means that, if my math is right, twenty years times fifty thousand comes to one million. So this guy was given the equivalent of 20 years' wages, that's a million dollars, that's what he was given. And yet the storyline seems to require us to think that he didn't think that was much. He just tucked it away and left it, didn't touch it. Because he kept looking at the other guys, the one who had two talents, who had five talents, oh, they've got a lot more than I have. But the thing is, even if you are a one-talent person, you have been given a huge amount. You are a millionaire. And the fact is that the vast majority of us in this age, it seems to me, are not one-talent people. We have been given more than that. So the church becomes, in that sense, the millionaires' club. But the point is, what are you doing with it? And just keeping it is not enough. If that's just what you're doing... You're going to get chucked out. That's. I'm sorry to be dramatic, but the parable is dramatic, is it not? It's emphasized, to every man this was given. <clears throat> it was given to each of them, verse, verse 15. To each man according to his individual ability. So each of us are given this calling. And it's, it's no good thinking that... Uh, there are just a few religious specialists within the church, within our religion or whatever, who do the work. The point is that each of us are called. Each of us are given this wealth to do something with. Now, of course we want to define in, what, in more detail what exactly are these talents. But the, my first point is that the talent is given when the person is called. A talent is a weight. A talent is a weight. And this is one of the saddest and most persistent uh, mistranslations in the whole Bible. Where people read this parable and they think, Oh yeah, this guy's got this talent. Uh, She's got a talent for cooking and he's got a talent for building and the other bloke's got a talent for, I don't know, car mechanics or something. And so people assume that this is a story, a, a parable, about how you use your your native talents. And that's not, I su- suggest, at all what it's talking about. Because the talent is a weight. It's a weight. It's just unfortunate that it's a, a word in English that has two meanings. The talent is not something you're born with. The talent is something you are given... You are given by the Lord when you are called to him. So it's not something, it's not your natural flair, your natural ability. Because unfortunately, this is what the world think That, oh, I've got this natural ability to be a figure skater, to be a football player, to be a, an accountant, to be this. I'll work on that, and I'll get better and better at it. Uh, and that that's, well, I'm not doing that for myself, I'm doing that for God. No, 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 no. This is not at all this is not at all what the Lord has in mind. He's saying, I have given you what I have given you with my expectations and my hopes for your using of it. I said earlier that the um, the that the language of the Lord giving or delivering the talents, these weights of I suggest of silver to the uh, to, to the three men this is very much the language of the faith that was delivered, was handed over to, to the saints. And yet, going, uh, going on in First uh, Corinthians seven seventeen, uh, again I think you have the same idea in, in what Paul is saying there. Where he says, as God has distri- distributed to and as God has called every man, so we are to develop our lives. And he's talking there in the context of your marital situation, whether you're single, married, divorced, once, twice, three times, four times, five times, as God has distributed to and called every man. This is the power of the talents. So there, he gives a slightly different take on it, and he says, it's your marital position. It's the position you had when you came to Christ in baptism. <clears throat> and that was a gift. That was a gift, he says, to be used. And again, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, every man has his own, it's a Greek word, idios, his idiosyncratic, if you like, his very personal gift. One this way, one that way. That's exactly the language of the parable of the talents. So even if you think you messed up in your life, no. Oh yeah, yes, you have. But, you know what I'm saying, when you come to Christ at baptism, then that is a gift that you are given, that you are to develop. And that was intended. Nothing was chance. Nothing was just bad luck. It was all meant to be. In Romans 12 verse 3. God has dealt to each man the measure of faith. And he talks there in Romans 12 about different callings. Within the life of the ecclesia. Within the life of the church. And he's saying that that is a gift. 1 Corinthians 12 again. The gifts of the spirit are divided to each man, idios, just like given in the parable of the talents, according to their idios, to their individual ability. So Peter says, As each man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's of Peter 4, verse 10. So, These gifts are given according to our individual ability. The Lord recognizes therefore that we have different abilities. And that we are called in different ways to do different things. Uniformity and unity are two different things. We are called of course to unity. But uniformity is not the same as unity. And this is wonderful, that each person has been given according to his idios, according to his individual ability. The Lord recognizes our abilities and he gives us blessings according to those things. And his hopes for us, his intentions for us, are in line with our abilities. He's not asking us to do more than what we can do. Now, I've said that the Lord immediately takes his journey. And I suggest that that was the element of unreality in the story. Because he doesn't train these guys. He doesn't uh, teach them how to use these talents. He's saying, it's up to you guys. It's purely on your initiative. And that was a particularly hard idea, particularly in the first century. When you knew your station and your place and the whole... Idea of training was really to just copy what someone else is doing. The idea of problem-based learning was just not there at all. So this man who had received verse sixteen, this, uh, this, these talents of silver, he went and he traded with the same. And why does it say he went? Why doesn't it just say he traded with them? He went and traded with them. And I, I suggest that that is an allusion to the Great Commission. Go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I think that the evidence is that the, the, the trading, the multiplication of the riches of Christ is, yes, partly in our own personal development as characters, but it is specifically in our work with others. He traded, and this is the same word to, to work, um, and it's just been used earlier in Matthew 21, verse 28, go work in the vineyard. It's bringing in the harvest, which, which is a harvest of persons. It's that which is the trading. Now, really, the the storyline of the parable leads us to to think that unless we do this work, then we shall not be saved. And of course we think, well, what about all those passages that talk about uh, you cannot be saved by works, it is by faith and by grace alone. Well, first of all, I, I would point out that if you look at those passages that say that, and look at them more carefully in Romans and Galatians, they actually say that by the works of the law, the Mosaic law, you shall not be saved. And then of course James says um, that faith without works is dead. I think the point is that yes, it is by faith. But if you really believe that you will be in God's kingdom, if you really believe this good news, you can't be passive to that. You would have to, you would have to respond. You simply would have to. And if you don't, well, you you haven't believed. It's as simple as that. You don't really believe that you're going to be in God's kingdom if you just live in the life that everybody else does in this world. The wonder of it hasn't got a grip on you because you don't believe it. So it is by faith, I agree. But... Faith without works. Um, here you have the example of works, uh, trading, working, uh, as it were. Uh, that is absolutely necessary as a sign of your belief. At the end of the Olivet prophecy, which sort of leads into this parable, the Lord has, has said that the Son of Man has left his house and given to each man in the household his work to do. That's Mark thirteen thirty four. So we have each been given this. This parable of the talents is not about a few people. Those who are in the public uh, limelight of of church life. This is about every single one of us. Barnabas and Saul were called, we read, to do the work of spreading the gospel. Acts 13 verse 2. But these are the same words that you read here. The servants were called and then they went and traded or worked. And the Holy Spirit, we're told, confirmed them in that work which they did, in that trading which they did. There were good works, good tradings, if you like, it's the same word, before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Clearly God intended certain specific uh, works from us. And if you don't perceive in your life what they are, I I suggest you really swimming and floundering in life. Get on your knees and ask God and the Lord Jesus to show you what are his hopes for you, what are his intentions for you. And he has those good works in mind for you to do, and he will reveal them to you if you, you want to do them. That's why Titus 3, be ready to every good work, or every good trading if you like, thoughtful to be ready for good works. In other words, be prepared. And 2 Timothy 3, 6, 17, the scriptures are given to us so that we might be well equipped to do good works. Be ready, 2 Timothy two twenty one, unto every good work. In other words, you've got to be open. So, when you pray that God will guide you and show you what are these works he has in mind for you, you've got to be open-minded to being shown what they are, and just open to his leading, because it may not be where you want to go. And that is really the whole purpose of the structure of church life, that the church, the ecclesia is there in order to just provide a structure, in order to do that. Consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, Hebrews 10, uh, 24. And then Hebrews 13, 21, God will frame you, he'll set you up in every good work to do his will. Now that's what we all want, we want to be framed, we want to be set up by God to do these works. And he will do that, he absolutely, absolutely will do that. So this man, back in the parable, went and traded with the same. Why emphasize that? Point is that he didn't use his natural talent. He didn't focus on that because that's just being up yourself, as just being self-centered, and doing what exactly, exactly the same as the guy next to you in this world. This man traded with the same. He went, He traded with what he'd been given at his conversion, and he made. Uh, another five talents, and that's the very word making or doing, which the Lord has just used at the end of Matthew twenty-four forty-six. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Making, doing what? Feeding, feeding the household their food in due season. Well, he he comes; these men come before the Lord in the last day. And they understand themselves. They can say, you gave me this, and your uh, talent has gained this, that, or the other. That self-knowledge will come ultimately at the day of judgment. Then we shall know ourselves. Then we shall perceive that, yes, he gave me this, and it turned into that. Now this word, gained... Same word, Matthew 18, verse 15. You have gained your brother. Paul says that he's sensitive to his behaviour, that I might gain them all. He says that four times in 1 Corinthians 9. The unbelieving husband is gained, gained for Christ, by the example of the believing wife. That's 1 Peter 3, verse 1. (coughs) So then, the idea of gaining is very much the idea of winning people, doing something for people. And that is ultimately what we're given the the gospel, the, the riches of Christ for. And it's no good saying, ah yeah, no, 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 ah, I'm not capable in this point, and that point, on this, on that, I I don't have money, I don't have this. Look here, you've been given a million dollars, so stop the, the excuses. You've been given so much so much. Don't please be like the, the man who says, well, I was only given a million. I was only given one talent. And he says, and I went and hid it in the, in the soil. This must be intended to be connected with Matthew thirteen forty four, where Jesus is likened to the man who finds the treasure hid in the soil, in the field, and the field is the world, and he goes and And buys it, redeems it, actually, is the word used. How does he do that? Through his own death. The world's redemption, the the purchase of the world. And yet this guy's gone and undone all the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and by putting this talent, this treasure, back in in the earth. And the, the Lord says at the end, in his analysis, you wicked and lazy servant, because of human laziness, Because he couldn't be bothered to get out of bed in time. Because he couldn't be bothered. It was all too much hassle. He's lazy. And we live in a world of utter laziness as never before. As never, ever before. Let's face it. Now, the other allusion here is clearly to Achan. The other man who hid wealth, talents, shekels that were not his in the earth. And that would put another perspective on this guy that maybe he thought that eventually by default, because this Lord was delaying his coming, and that's the connection with the whole previous teaching that this is part of in Matthew 24 and 25, that because his Lord was delaying his coming, it might just by default end up as his Well, the Lord commends the faithful servants because they have been faithful in a few things. But he's used this phrase, faithful servant, just in the introduction of these parables. Uh, It's in Matthew 24, verse 45. And there, the faithful servant was the one who provided food to the others in the household. So that's the same as multiplying the talents. In other words... The, the training of the talents is care for others and not developing your own natural ability. You can't mean that anyway, because as you get older, your natural talents, if you, as I say, let's say you think you're talented as a footballer or whatever, that, that all goes, that all fades as uh, physical health and mental health decline uh, over the years. Whereas the the work for others... Just continues to bear fruit. And the Lord says you've been faithful over a few things. Luke 19 verse 17 says, it's a parallel palable, you've been faithful in a very little. And that's the same word used later on in this parable, in this chapter, Matthew 25, verses 40 and 45, about the least of these my brethren. You've been faithful in the least, the least of these my brethren. And I think that, uh, again, you're seeing the idea that the trading of the talents is the caring for others. If you've been faithful, he says, over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. That, in other words, the, the whole nature of our lives now is a training. And the principles that we're learning now we are going to be using eternally. Now if you're not going to do any trading, if you're going to do anything for anybody else, then well what, what, what's the point of being in the kingdom of God? If you don't like doing that sort of thing, if you don't like caring for other people, if you don't like seeing the Lord's work prospering, well, what, what's the point of being in the kingdom? The man is told, the the faithful are told, enter into the joy of your Lord. But what was the Lord's joy? Well, it makes quite an interesting study to think about the, the joy of the Lord Jesus. He describes himself as the shepherd who rejoices, who has joy over the lost sheep. The repentance of any sinner is the source of joy in those parables of the lost in Luke 15. He was joyful that the disciples believed in him. He was joyful at finding the uh, the believers, the 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 treasure hid in the field. His joy, he says in John fifteen, is to become your joy. My joy is your joy. So then, the joy of our Lord into which we enter is his joy at the salvation of others. That's again an indication that the trading of the working of the talents is for others and for their salvation. What we've been given now, then, is, as he says in 23, just a few things. Let's remember that. We talk about the truth, but it is a few things. It is not ultimate uh, truth, as it were, in a sort of cosmic uh, sense. And so far as we are faithful with that, we will be given for our own, not only what we've been given in this life to kind of play with, to kind of uh, use, but also all things. And they will become, in a radical sense, ours. And that's why, at the end of the story, he says, take uh, take the, the, the talent away from the one-talent man and give it to the man who has ten talents. And they say, Lord, but he has ten talents. So he has ten talents. Five the Lord gave him that he's allowed to keep, and the five that he made for the Lord that he's also allowed to keep. So what that shows is that what you, as it would achieve in this life, spiritually, you will keep eternally. This is a, a unique uh, insight, I think, into the nature of eternity, that we shall eternally be like that. That what you do in this life will have eternal consequence. Now, the talk of grace, which is so throughout the New Testament, is absolutely right. But it can be taken too far to the point where achievement, achievement is completely underrated. And it's always a dirty word. But what's this parable about if it's not about achievement? And if it's not about the eternal consequence of what is achieved in this world for others, not for oneself, but for others. That seems to me to be the absolutely clear teaching of what is being said here, and and to to argue that achievement or or, or work or whatever is not really that relevant, well, I think you're arguing right in the the teeth of what the Lord is saying here, and coming close to the mentality of the one-talent man who says, well, I did nothing. Well, this one talent man then, he says, I knew you, that you didn't reap, and you, you, you tried to uh, reap, sorry, where you didn't sow. Well, the Lord Jesus could have said, no, wrong, you don't know me. No, wrong, when the man says, you reap where you didn't sow, and I know that you're like that. Well, reaping is clearly a figure for judgment, and the man had not seen the Lord Jesus judge anyone at that time. So Jesus could have said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. But he's more gracious than that. And he says, no, okay, if this is how you think about me, then you should have acted in such and such way. You should have put my money to the bank then, if I'm such a bad person. And then I would have accepted you. So then, I think you can learn a lot from that. Because the Lord is saying, okay, you did not understand me correctly. But okay, that's okay, but if you had acted with integrity according to those understandings of me, then I would have accepted you. And I think that that says a lot for how the Lord will judge those who do not know him correctly on some points, quite a few points. It doesn't mean they will not be saved, it all comes down to how you live in accordance with that knowledge. Now, the man sort of makes some garbled, I think, allusions to the teachings of Jesus when he says you gather where you have not sown uh, uh, and you you reap where you haven't sown and you gather where you haven't strawed." This is actually out of Matthew 6.26, the very same words are used. That the birds don't sow, reap or gather and yet God still feeds them. Uh, and then you've got it again in John four thirty eight, where Jesus says to the disciples, I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labour, other men laboured. It's as if the guy is just quoting bits and pieces of scripture way out of context to justify his laziness. And that is what you see time and again, do you not? People quoting bits and pieces of scripture way out of context. To simply justify what they would wish to be true, to justify themselves. Now he says, "You, you reap where you have not sown." It's as if he's saying that the the word of the kingdom is not sown by you in in all places, and yet you turn up there and you still try to reap a harvest. Well, if I were Jesus, I I'd have said that rubbish, absolutely rubbish. I I, I run a, a principle of knowledge is related to responsibility. If someone did not hear the word of the kingdom, I am not going to judge them. I don't expect to get a harvest from a, a human heart when I didn't sow the word. And this guy saying, ah, oh, but you do. But Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't argue with him. He, he uses the man's own words and says, all right, even if I were like that, then you should have done such and such. This is, Typical of him, how he uses the language of demons, although there are no, no such things as demons. Yet he, he he speaks as if there are. He goes along with people within their own frames of reference and their own words. Now, this man's objection is alive and well in the postmodern world in which we live. I keep on hearing this from people who, in one breath, will sort of say they're believers who say, ah, oh, but the trouble with God, you know, what about those who have not heard? What about that these ones who never had a chance? That's not fair. Well, apart from being absolutely up yourself to, to think that you have a right to argue back with God, apart from being conceited and up yourself to think that you have the right to say that to God, that the clay has a right to argue with the potter, this is the very argument of this guy. Oh, I'm not going to do anything for you because you reap, you expect stuff from where you didn't sow. He's raising this old thing, this old problem about the problem of those who have not heard. You didn't sow, and yet you you try to reap these people. And of course the whole point is, look, that's not an excuse, buddy. You were given a million dollars, you were given a talent, and you did nothing with it. Just start bleating and blithering on about philosophical issues that you're way out of your depth in, about why God did this and why he doesn't do that. You're way out of your depth, mate, because you're not God, and you're sitting there on a talent of silver, or or, or, let's say uh, 6,000 denarii, 20 years wages, and you're expected to do something and you won't on the basis of some philosophical objection about those who have not heard. Uh, This ancient parable is right up to the 21st century, is it not? I think the man's a little bit more honest when he says, I was afraid. So I hid your talent. What I think he meant was, I was afraid of making a mess. I was afraid of, I I was afraid of what men might think. Because the guy who had five talents and made another five talents, you can be sure that in the process of trading, he lost a bit. He went down and then he went up. That's life. That's business life. That's how everything is. And yet this guy who did nothing was afraid. He was frightened of his own image. And so he says, I hid your talent. And here you have what is yours. It's as if he thinks that by sort of holding on to these things, he therefore and thereby is justified. And of course the Lord says that no you lazy and wicked servant. Get away from me. Now, here you have what is yours. He had not made it his. See, the other servants say, you gave me this money, and I did this with it. This guy says, you can have back what is yours. Now, he hadn't made it his own. And uh, as I said earlier, the ten talent man is the man who's who ends up with 10 talents of his own because he's given five, which are become his. He makes another five and they become his. He hadn't personalized God's truth, this one talent guy. He thought that I've just been given this and I gotta give it back to you. And as I say, that's very similar with the mentality that says I've been given God's truth, this set of understandings. And man's greatest duty is to preserve those teachings uh, in, in their sort of pristine beauty, and to give it back to Jesus when I die without having messed up my understanding of any little slight part of it. Well, there would be no ultimate point in that. What would be the final ultimate point in God doing that? The whole point is that we use that for others and in order to multiply His work. Now, the Lord says to him, Look, you wicked servant. There's only one other time when he talks about a wicked servant, and that's in Matthew eighteen thirty-two, where there is this servant who runs up a huge debt, of billions of dollars with this with this master of his. The only way he really could have run up such a debt was really by dishonesty, by thieving, and by being chronically materialistic. That a million wasn't enough, and a billion wasn't enough. He ran up this huge debt. And then he's forgiven, and then he gets another guy and beats him up, throwing him 200 pence and puts him in prison. And he's called a wicked servant. Now, the two servants who are called wicked are quite different. The one in Matthew 18 proactively committed all kinds of sin. He was chronically materialistic. The wicked servant in Matthew 25 is not materialistic really because he doesn't sell the talent he might have possibly hoped he might become his by default but he uh, he didn't sell it as he's very careful to say this is your talent and I'm giving it back to you he wasn't like the prodigal son who took the father's money and blew it but who came back and because he wanted to come back he was accepted and the, he had the humility that the one talent man didn't have so this Wicked servant of chapter 25, I would suggest, is the example of sin of omission. And the other wicked servant in chapter 18 is big time sin of commission. And the point is that the one is as bad as the other. And that is something that is difficult to cope with, I think. Because we all like to think that. The fact that I do not commit Sin. It means that I'm basically not doing too bad. And this is a chilling message of this story. That the sin of omission is what leads to such terrible condemnation. And then the Master explains to him, you ought to have put my money into the bank. And that's why they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When it is explained to someone how they could have entered God's kingdom, but now it is too late. That's far worse than all the classics, sort of hellfire burning and all the rest of it. Now, to lend your money for interest was forbidden under the law. At least it was forbidden uh, to do that to your Jewish brother. And Jesus is speaking here in a Jewish context. I think what he's saying, and this is, I think, the crunch point of the parable, the end stress, as we have seen before, that the point of the parable uh, is, is in the end. He is saying, look, you should have done at least something, even if that something involved you breaking some laws of, of God, breaking that which was uh, ideally expected of you, but you should have done at least something. And then he says, from him that has not, shall be taken away even that which he has. So that's a paradox. What Has he got the, uh, anything or not? 29, from him that has not should be taken away even what he has. Well, he has not in the sense that he had not developed anything for others. A a man is in that sense what he has done for others. And if this person had lived his life and done nothing, then he had nothing. And therefore what he had been given by God to enable him to be like that shall be taken away from him. So then, he who has ten talents is the one who, as Luke 16 says, is given uh, for his own those things which were once another man's. We in this life have been given that which is the Lord's to develop, to trade, and this opens up a, a whole new dimension into what the nature of the kingdom shall be like, that then we shall, in a radical sense, own these things for ourselves, and continue the life of trading for his glory, which we have started now.